Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Dave DeCamp, who is news editor at antiwar.com and host of Antiwar News with Dave DeCamp. Find them on Twitter at DeCamp. Dave, welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, you know, you do awesome work at antiwar.com and we chatted in the spring on my TNT radio show and I wanted to get your thoughts on the usual, you know, war, foreign policy and so forth, sort of a geopolitics world tour and maybe right out of the gate, I think we could start with your latest pieces uh, over at Antiwar and Libertarian uh, Institute, which look at ultra hawk Liz Truss, who I definitely don't think we can trust, pun intended. Liz is definitely uh, a company woman, a woman of the military industrial complex, a wafer that is a World Economic Forum-er. Uh, and when the crown says, press the shiny red button, I think Liz uh, responds, she says, how many nukes would you like? And just before we connected, I saw Martin Armstrong come out and say, everything that can possibly point to war is unfolding before our eyes. There are no peacemakers left in the world. Uh, every leader appears to be pushing for war because the monetary system is cracking. He was also referring to uh, Liz. So sort of what's your take on Liz Trust as, as prime uh, minister and which way the radioactive uh, winds are, are blowing? Yeah, well, things aren't looking good when you see Liz Truss because she's been really the most hawkish Western official, rhetorically speaking, at least since Russia invaded and Ukraine and the U.S. and its allies started shipping billions of weapons into Ukraine. You know, she said just a lot of really provocative stuff. She said that she supported Britons on their own going to fight in Ukraine. That was when the war first broke out. She said, Putin must be defeated, no negotiations until a strategic defeat. And that means, I mean, if you look at this situation in Ukraine, territory hasn't really changed hands too much. Ukraine's trying to launch this counteroffensive now that doesn't seem to be making much progress. So if that's your goal is to defeat Russia in Ukraine, that means that they're going to be committed to this war for years and possibly even decades. And we've seen this rhetoric from the US, from US officials and NATO officials too, but they've kind of backed down, even though that's still the policy. I think uh, just for PR purposes, they're, they're, they stopped saying the quiet part out loud, but trust hasn't stopped. And you mentioned she was in a town hall recently and she was asked how she would feel about launching nuclear weapons, which would mean global annihilation. And she just said, I'm ready. Let's do it. She sounded pretty eager. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely concerning. And as Europe is really facing this energy crisis and, and the UK as well, um, it seems like she's really going to double down on all the policies that that led to that. She's talking about um, China too. She wants to. She wants a global NATO, a NATO capable of defending Taiwan. She said. So it's just. It seems like she's going to escalate tensions everywhere. And when it comes to the Middle East, the best analysis that I've read on her is that it's going to be business as usual for the UK in that region, which means supporting Israel, supporting Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and just really following the US uh, in that region of the world. And there, it says that she, from what I understand, she might push back on some US policies, but not when it comes to the warmongering stuff. If anything, she's going to push for the US to be more uh, hawkish, it seems like. A message from our sponsors. It seems we may be headed for the 1930s all over again. Financial collapse, tyranny, and world war. I've already secured multiple passports, offshore accounts, safe havens, and escaped to the sunnier shores of Mexico. My friend Mikkel Thorup of the Expat Money Show is hosting the Expat Money Summit with 30-plus experts that'll help you reclaim freedom in this fourth turning by moving your life and wealth offshore. 
Protect yourself and secure a new life abroad. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com or don't and enjoy surviving an insect protein while stuck in the metaverse. Since 2020, Ron Unz of Unz.com has argued the COVID outbreak was due to a U.S. biowarfare attack against China and Iran. Jeffrey Sachs, the Russian Ministry of Defense, and others are now making similar suggestions. Weeks before COVID appeared in Wuhan, a top U.S. biowarfare official ran the Crimson Contagion exercise on how to protect America against infection if a dangerous virus suddenly appeared in China. After COVID appeared in Wuhan, it jumped to Iran, infecting Iranian leadership only weeks after America had assassinated Iran's military commander. Iran publicly accused America of an illegal biowarfare attack and filed a complaint with the UN. Ron Unz has produced a free ebook and is available for interviews to further discuss this issue. And don't forget to fund Geopolitics and Empire. You can leave a donation, except on Patreon or PayPal, which have banned us, book a consultation, or become a member. As you said, it's, it's pretty much always been business as usual. I don't think uh, we, we are so lucky to get you know, better people. Uh, but you, you mentioned her giddy at unleashing nukes. And just maybe to get a broader context, I don't know if you caught it. I think it was some weeks ago, the top Russian uh television i think his name is vladimir i can't remember his name you, you probably know who he is but even the russians are just nonchalantly talking about nuking uh the island the uk britain um and just you know that sort of rhetoric is also not and and they're pretty much their attitude seems to be like bring it you know and they got through the napoleon they got through the germans and i think they've got this hardened uh you know history and attitude of just like bring it you know if it, if it comes to nukes let, let, let's go. And so, you know, a, any further thoughts there? Yeah, well, I think there is also a difference when because you see the Russian broadcasters and state TV, they're they're very hawkish and are talking about nuking the island and stuff. But when you see the rhetoric from the Russian officials, from Putin and Dmitry Medvedev, who speaks a lot, who I think is a pretty good representation of what Putin's thinking. He's a former president and he's the deputy on the Russian Security Council now. You know, they they're they've had some pretty fiery rhetoric too, but it's still kind of couched in like, you know, it's the worst case scenario is would be nuclear war and that they would only do it if they feel an existential threat. And then you see trust just saying, you know, when asked about her feelings, you know, there should be some emotion there when you're discussing ordering possibly the end of humanity. And we just didn't see that from her. And also uh, when it comes to Russia, you know, at, right now we're kind of relying on the restraint of Russia to not get sucked into a direct NATO-Russian war because there's British troops are in Ukraine. There's been reporting that says there's British special forces around Kiev training Ukrainian troops, and they're training uh, thousands inside uh, the UK. They're planning on training 10,000 Ukrainian soldiers within the span of 120 days. That's a small army there. Um so they're very involved in this war. And at what point will Russia say, all right, enough is enough and either attack a NATO site or what, you know, however they decide to do it, um, that we're ultimately relying on their restraint, which is not encouraging considering what they've been doing in Ukraine. Yeah, although uh, to be fair, Medvedev, it's it's kind of amusing for me. He's been sounding a bit uh, Rasputin-like or, or Nostr Nostradamus. He's been... Uh, citing scripture and talking about horsemen and that sort of thing. So <laughs> that's kind of uh, interesting. And you've mentioned, um, you've been also talking about global NATO. And 
I view NATO as basically wanting to become the world uh, policeman alongside its political arm, the United Nations. And we see NATO, um, it just continues to expand, seeking NATO global partners in Latin America, like with Colombia, trying to get Brazil uh, on board. They're trying to create an Asian NATO. Uh, recently, there's been talk of a Middle Eastern NATO and just sort of what's your take on this idea of, of global NATO and you know wh where NATO is at? Yeah, I mean, it really seems like they have their eyes on expanding into Asia to really confront China. Um, they've said that for a couple of years now, basically identified China as a threat to the alliance. And it, it looks like it's following a similar pattern, at least in the Asia Pacific right now in Southeast Asia. There's a lot of those countries are very reluctant to get on board with the U.S.'s plans in that region. They don't really want to pick a side. Some of them lean more towards China, but for the most part, it seems like they just don't want to get in the middle of these two superpowers. If there's going to be a war between them, it's going to be there. It's going to be around Taiwan and in Southeast Asia and in the greater Pacific area too. So at least uh, I think there's some hope there in that uh, these countries don't seem like they want to go along. But then on the other hand, you have Japan uh, seems pretty willing. They're building up their, their military and they have so many U.S. bases. But the U.S. seems like it's having trouble putting a new base. They want to establish a new fleet for the region. Right now, this, the U.S. is seventh fleet, which is based in Japan. They do all the operations you know, in the South China Sea and stuff, and they want to move something closer to that area. But I don't think they've been able to find a host. Australia is willing, but they're they're pretty far also. So I think their reluctance is kind of our best bet for um, avoiding, you know, an expansion of NATO in the region and a situation similar to what we saw transpire in Eastern Europe. Because Ukraine and Taiwan are obviously very different. But the similarity here is that China's warning Taiwan's a red line and the U.S. isn't listening. Similar to how it wasn't just Russia warning, it was many U.S. foreign policy experts and officials saying, you know, Ukraine... It's a, it's a red line for them. It could lead to a war. And then that's that's what happened. So with Taiwan now, and we're seeing uh, really this bipartisan push started with Nancy Pelosi in the beginning of August going to the island. And China responded by launching their largest ever military exercises around the island. They fired missiles over Taiwan, simulated a blockade. But that didn't stop. The U.S. delegations kept going. There's been four more since Pelosi visited. There are two governors and I forgot her name. She's a senator Republican from Tennessee, Marsha Blackburn, but just completely ridiculous, like Twitter tirade while she's in Taiwan, basically making it clear that she's there to, to, to stick it in China's face. And China's not backing down. They've increased. They keep, they're keeping up the pressure. Taiwan shot down a drone uh, in territory that they control near the mainland. A lot of people might not understand that Taiwan controls these small islands that are on the other side of the Taiwan Strait, on the mainland side. And it's it, where they shot down this drone. They didn't say it was a Chinese drone. They said it was an unidentified civilian drone, but it flew from uh, Chaimen, which is the Chinese city. That's only two miles from where this drone was shot down. So, you know, that's an area where if China sees the U.S. keep pushing and pushing, that they could just, it looks like they could grab pretty easily, I would think, because it's right on the mainland. And then who knows what that could possibly set off. So we're just in very dangerous territory and it doesn't seem like either side is uh, backing down. Yeah. As you uh, pointed out, we are seeing many of these countries sort of try to walk that thin line uh, on the wire, you know, India balancing between 
Russia, China, and the U.S. Uh, you mentioned Japan is obviously more militarized um, and on on board with the U.S. program. Um, you know, maybe South Korea is also thinking about certain things. But uh, yeah, uh, you mentioned the, the drones, and it's interesting. I also read that Beijing will send its third most powerful, uh, you know, CCP figure to the Eastern Economic Forum in of Vladivostok. And you know, any further thoughts on what some people call the a continued integration of the the dragon bear, the the world island, you know, the this Sino Russian New World Order. Uh, there are many different names for the multipolar world. Um, we see Iran now buying drones from uh, Russia. Um, I, I'm, they're going to take the Mir payment system, and I think Russia is now going to be buying from North Korea um, military uh, equipment, missiles, and stuff. And I forget the uh, ah. Iran was going to buy is now going to buy Su thirty five jets from Russia. So you see, you see sort of this connectivity uh, all over the place. Any further thoughts there? Yeah, well, I mean, the most interesting part about it is just how kind of obvious that how U.S. policy of just always trying to use force against these countries is driving them together. Um, it seems like it's either uh, just hubris and. Uh, just a stupid policy or it might be by design almost because it's just so such an obvious uh, consequence of the U.S. pushing Russia and pushing China and, of course, Iran, which is under all these really uh, tough sanctions. And it doesn't look like the Iran nuclear deal is going to be revived anytime soon. So really, the natural reaction for them is to try to create an alternate economic system. You know, China's looking into the future now. Of course, the U.S. and Chinese economies are so intertwined. But the U.S. keeps sanctioning, uh, taking these steps to sanction China's economy in, in small ways, but significant ways. They're banning. Uh, they're looking at ways to ban U.S. investment in Chinese tech, which is pretty. If you, you know, something you would think was unimaginable just a few years ago with how many people were making money, how many Americans are making money in China. So the tides are definitely turning. And again, China's looking to the future and. Uh, Russia's really benefiting from this by being able to sell all of its oil to China and also India. India is definitely an interesting player because of how they're trying to play it in the middle. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just a consequence of U.S. policy and it's short sighted. And it's, it's, but again, it's just so obvious that this would happen. Yeah. And you made an interesting point. I mean, it's either they're so incompetent, the West, or it's all by design. And then that becomes a real, sort of cynical take that if the West is intentionally driving the East together, I mean, that's a whole nother tangent and, and, and discussion, but it's like, you know, what would be the purpose? It's almost like to force the creation of uh, what, what Orwell touched on in his book, you know, like a regional block um, system. But um, just to go back to Ukraine and, and Russia and get your, uh, you know, further uh, update there we're seeing I, I think yesterday russia just announced they're shutting gas uh, until sanctions are removed um there have been strange ongoings related to the nuclear plants uh, i think i read that ukraine may have wanted to use iaea inspectors as human shields power has been cut off again uh, russia is attempting to convene uh, a meeting to discuss the u.s use of biological um weapons my, my last guest here on geopolitics and empire was chris newby who, whose book, she, she got Lyme disease, and she says, you know, that was a consequence of U.S. bio, uh, a U.S. bioweapons uh, program. Uh, and just before we connected, a half hour uh, before Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, who's a frequent guest here, 
uh, just published a piece saying he's expecting the conflict to expand and escalate uh, to World War III. And so, you know, where do you see us now regarding Ukraine? Yeah, uh, I mean, things, again, aren't looking too promising. It's just really hard to imagine anybody de-escalating the situation here. And with the, the Russian gas, so they cut off the Nord Stream 1 pipeline and they said it'll stay cut off until the West lifts sanctions. And that move, that came after the G7, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and the other finance ministers from the G7 agreed to try to implement a price cap on Russian oil, which is, you know, speaking of short-sighted policies, they've been talking about this for a while. And we've seen all these analysts and financial analysts, oil market analysts and experts say, if you try to do this, this is going to send oil prices really skyrocketing because Russia will most likely retaliate by cutting off the countries that try to impose this cap and cutting oil production and taking a lot of their oil off the market, which, you know, is naturally, of course, going to send prices just soaring. And Russia has already said that if they try to implement this, we're going to retaliate. And they announced the Nord Stream 1 was being cut off, you know, pretty much right after the G7 came out and said that they were going to implement this price cap. And the idea of the price cap is, you know, Russia's making more profit from their oil right now than before the war. But these EU sanctions that are coming up in December that are set to take effect, they're banning the import of Russian oil. And they're also banning insurance on Russian oil shipments. Russia is still reliant on Europe's, on insurance from Europe to ship its oil. So the US, Yellen, is afraid that that is going to send prices higher. So this is what she came up with, a plan that could make things even worse. Um, and Russia has shown us that they're willing to take an initial economic hit to weather sanctions and to, to just not, there's no way that they're going to sell oil at a price set by the US, set by the West. Um, and then it also relies on cooperation from China and India to agree to go along with this plan. But they they have no interest in sort of you know rocking the boat in this situation. And when it comes to the, just the overall direction that this this war is going, Biden, he's already asking Congress for another 13.7 billion to fund the war. So if we do the math, I think it's about 66 billion that the U.S. has is is looking to spend to fund this war, and that all goes is spent in different ways. One of the most egregious ways, I think, is that they there's this aid that's called budgetary direct budgetary aid that they just hand to the Ukrainian government to fund the Ukrainian government. And uh, so far, I think it's been about eight billion that they've just given to the government of Ukraine, and also, of course, the weapons uh, over 13 billion in weapons that they've pledged to ship to Ukraine. And then the Pentagon gets a lot of it to just replenish their stockpiles so that everybody's just making tons of money off this. All the people that really run the show in Washington, the arms makers and the think tankers. So it's just a total boon for them. And, you know, there is some opposition to it, I guess, in some Republicans, you know, kind of like the MAGA Republicans. But it's not when it comes to the mainstream. For the most part, the Republicans are are on board for this. Yeah, I mean, that, that money has got to go to, to those rave parties in Kiev, to Zelensky's <laughs> mansions in, I don't know, Tuscany or Florida, wherever he's got them. Uh, yeah, I was reading this $47 billion bill for uh, Ukraine uh, and COVID and monkeypox. I'm like, okay, isn't COVID over? Isn't monkeypox not a thing? Like, they're just draining uh, the American, uh, you know, America's uh, treasury. And uh, you, you've also been writing about... Um, as I'll, I'll say, the B-52 bombers uh, over Baghdad, uh, they're often, uh, you say, dispatched to the region during nuclear negotiations or amid soaring tensions with Iran. Uh, I recall uh, 
last year i talked with dr francis boyle uh, about this and it was uh, it was a year or two ago and they did the same thing uh flying b-52s that uh, could be equipped uh, that are nuclear uh capable and um you said you're not uh you don't think the jcpoa talks are going to succeed but it, it just really seems like this age same old tango between washington tel aviv and tehran it's like they you know things are quiet for a while and then they revive send the b-52s you see in the press this talk about bombing iran and then things die down again it's just rinse and repeats uh you know do you have any further insights on on what's happening with uh israel iran and, and the u.s yeah uh this is pretty you know a typical thing we saw it a lot at the end of the trump administration a lot of bombers were flying over there when tensions were really high Israel really stepped up its airstrikes in Syria and, and covert attacks inside Iran. It seemed like they were trying to provoke them while Trump was still in office. Um, but now, so the EU recently kind of revived the negotiations to the JCPOA negotiations. And a big part of that is because of the energy crisis, because, you know, if you get Iranian oil and, and gas and stuff back on the market, it could alleviate. I forget the exact figures, but I read some uh, in the financial papers and stuff, just about how it could make a pretty significant impact on the global market. So that would be good for Europe. So that's what I think drove the EU push to do this. And it kind of looked like for a second there, and now I, I I feel naive that I was thinking because like you said, it just seems like it's been the same thing for, for years now. It looked like for a second, a deal might've been made. The US said that we were closer. The EU said that, you know, it, both sides were giving reasonable responses to each other. But in Iran's latest response amid these negotiations, they just submitted it last week. And the, and the U.S. said, ah, this is not encouraging. We're moving backwards. And now the EU says that the deal's in danger. We don't know the exact details. And that's like a whole, whole show in itself to get into it. But basically, it seems like they're at odds over guarantees. They want some sort of guarantees that the U.S. won't pull out again. Or if they do, there will be consequences. And because the JCPOA isn't a treaty, they can't promise that a future administration would stay in it. You know, we saw that with the Trump administration. They pulled out and imposed all the sanctions on Iran. But they're looking for ways that if the U.S. pulls out, they, they'll have exemptions. The, the, the businesses that are the Western companies that are doing business in Iran would have like a certain amount of time, a few years, sanctions exemptions if the U.S. pulls out of the deal. Just because, you know, if you're Iran and you're looking at politics in the U.S., it's pretty clear that a Republican is probably going to win. I mean, unless things in the next presidential election, unless things drastically change. And it's almost guaranteed that a Republican would pull out of the deal and put sanctions on Iran again. So, you know, it has to be worthwhile for them. And Biden had a chance to revive the deal last year in other negotiations. All he had to do was say, uh, I'll stay in the deal during my administration. That was the only promise. And this under the condition that Iran would keep, stay in the limits, keep its nuclear program in the limits. And he said no. So really, Biden just doesn't seem to have any political will to lift sanctions on Iran when Israel's really stepping up the pressure. And... Um, you know, just another show of force. The other day, they flew the B-52 bombers and they were escorted by Israeli jets. And Israel's always threatening to bomb Iran and they carry out covert attacks. So what kind of messages does that send during negotiations? It doesn't send uh, a good one. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of uh, Israel and uh, attacks, I mean, one thing that irks me is the situation on Syria. Um, I like the cradle.co. I think it's, I think it's that CO, uh, a mm -hmm. great, great uh, website on the Middle East. And They've been reporting that the U.S. just set up a new 
military base in Syria and that, you know, uh, Israel was hitting, I think, two airports in Syria. I think it was in Damascus and I don't, I don't know the other one. And basically the U.S. troops are outright in broad daylight just stealing the majority of Syria's oil, I think like 80 percent daily and over the last 11 years i think it's been like 107 billion dollars worth of syria's oil i mean imagine the impoverishment that causes to the average syrian and i, I can speak from experience as a as a mexican where we have our uh, electricity and and water and gasoline subsidized by the government you know thanks to uh you know pemex i think providing something like 30 percent of the government's uh, revenues and so imagine how how much better Syrians could live if they uh, if the Americans weren't stealing their uh, oil and, and then there's the Russia uh, Israel relationship which seems to have soured as Russia recently kicked out a number of Jewish uh, uh, news agencies out of Russia so there seems to be a rift there and it, it seems Syria really can't mount a defense even with Russia and Iran and and others as allies and so any thoughts on what's going on there in Syria? Yeah, well, yeah, it's a really horrible situation. Um, you mentioned that cradle report that they're building a third base in this area of northeast Syria that's by an, another oil field. You know, that's a sign that the U.S. isn't going anywhere. And they have about a thousand troops in eastern Syria and they back the SDF, that's the Kurdish militant group. And just by doing that, that's where most of the country's oil is. And it's part of the sanctions campaign. You know, they say that they're there to fight ISIS, but it's really part of the campaign, the economic warfare against Damascus, against the Syrian government. Because on top of that presence, they have these sanctions on Syria, really brutal sanctions that specifically target construction. They're, Anthony Blinken said this himself last year, that uh, the point, the goal of these sanctions is to prevent Syria's reconstruction. And it's a regime change policy. He said, to prevent Syria's reconstruction until there's a political change in Damascus, which means regime change. It's their coded way of saying it. But yeah, I mean, this is just a crushing policy. And they also tacitly endorse these Israeli airstrikes in Syria. They just bombed the Aleppo airport and the Damascus airport uh, recently to, as well. And Israel says that these airstrikes, they're bombing Iran in Syria, but they often kill Syrian troops. And there are a lot of Shia militias in Syria that are allies of the Assad government that helped them fight ISIS, that helped the U.S. fight ISIS too just a few years ago, that Iran does support uh, to varying degrees. But anytime they bomb one of them, they're saying, oh, this is, we're hitting Iran here. But it's really, I think, more about this overall policy of just trying to suffocate Syria. Um, and this is just seems to be the status quo. And on top of that, in the Northwest, in Idlib, still all Al-Qaeda occupied. HTS is the group that runs most of that area. And, you know, the Western media likes to say, oh, they're former Al-Qaeda, so they're not as bad as they used to be, but they're still uh, pretty bad. And the U.S. also launches airstrikes there once in a while. You know, nobody really, uh, there's not much scrutiny there. We don't know exactly you know, if they're killing civilians or not. Um, so it's just a really bad situation in Syria and there's no sign that it's going to change anytime soon. Yeah. Be before sort of ending with uh, your thought on some things back home uh, in, in the States, any, uh, you know, other thoughts uh, on foreign uh, ongoings, foreign policy? I mean, Yemen, there seems to be this stalemate. Uh, you know, anything else that's catching your eye or that you're looking into uh, beyond the U.S.? 
Yeah, well, I would say Yemen is an important one um, that I feel like I wish I should be covering more, but I just haven't seen much news coming out of there. It does seem like it's been a stalemate. There hasn't been any Saudi airstrikes since March, which is good, but the blockade still seems to be imposed. And they've eased it a little bit, um, but again, it's a stalemate. And Somalia is another one that it looks like Biden is escalating. There is uh, three rounds of air, U.S. airstrikes in Somalia in July and, and August against Al-Shabaab. Um, but again, Somalia is one where, you know, U.S. operations are, are really shrouded in secrecy. We really have no idea what's going on on the ground. We just have to take, again, you know, we can't take AFRICOM's word for what happened because time and time again, whenever journalists or, you know, any sort of organ human rights organization, whenever they get to a scene of U.S. airstrike in Somalia, it's a much different story than what the U.S. military said. Pretty often there's civilian casualties and stuff. But, you know, these airstrikes came after Biden ordered uh, troops back into Somalia, which reversed a Trump administration drawdown. The Trump's withdrawal from Somalia wasn't really a true withdrawal because he just put the troops in Djibouti in Kenya, which is right next door. So drones could still bomb Somalia. But Biden actually did significantly decrease U.S. airstrikes in Somalia when he first came in. They really dropped, but recently we're seeing this escalation. So that's not a good sign. And uh, yeah, when it comes to the foreign policy stuff, that's uh, all the major stuff I think we covered pretty good. Yeah, I've, I've chatted with Lawrence Freeman, um, who's an expert on Ethiopia, and he's detailing there's a regime change operation in Ethiopia. The West is backing a, a group that uh, they want to overthrow the current government in, in Ethiopia that is seems to be better for the Ethiopian people that wants uh, sovereignty. And you know, I, I, I just wanted to get your thought on uh, what I call the the Biden V for Vendetta speech uh, the other day. The the optics I'm sure you've seen, and it, it seems unreal uh, in a way. And and the language that he was using is is like something out of a movie where. I mean, if it were, I mean, even if it was, you know, Trump saying half of the half of America Democrats are extremists, I mean, that's not a diplomatic way to speak. And then we're seeing the New York governor saying all the Republicans, you know, you know, probably a third or half of people living in New York should just leave. I mean, I went to the school of diplomacy. This is not how politicians should be speaking, regardless of political party. I mean, what, what was sort of your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, really designating, it's just amazing how he frames it, saying that Republicans, you know, specifically the MAGA Republicans are a threat to democracy. But, you know, you're just saying that your competition, <laughs> your political opponents are a threat to democracy. So then how is the how is that? The other party is a threat. To, the fact that there's another option is a threat to democracy. Um, yeah, I mean, it seemed like he was declaring a lot of Americans uh, his enemy. And I just don't see how it just also seems short-sighted as as election season is coming up, but it also sets a tone that, um, you know, we saw this big media clampdown during the 2020 election. Really, the most glaring example was the Hunter Biden laptop story that was censored from Twitter. You couldn't even go to the link. Uh, it, it's kind of setting us up again, I think, for something like that, where we're going to see a lot of FBI involvement in policing the social media and stuff we mark zuckerberg said recently that they censored the they didn't do it as facebook didn't do it as blatantly as twitter did i think i forget exactly what they did maybe they just kind of deboosted it so less people saw it 
but that they did that because the FBI warned them, hey, there's going to be some, you know, Russian disinformation coming out that you got to watch out for. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that in this next election cycle. But I think a lot of Americans, it's going to be more obvious to them this time. Biden, I mean, he he's really his polling. It's just really not looking good for him. Um, so I would just wonder what measures he will go to to prevent uh, the people around him really will go to to prevent a Republican from uh, winning or, you know, a MAGA type, another Trump type. If, if it's not Trump himself, I would be surprised if it's Trump. But, you know, see how far they'll go to win the next one. Yeah, I'm I'm starting to freak out about, you know, what sort of October surprise they might uh, pull, you know, you know, pandemics, monkey poxes. I mean, what, who knows what they, <laughs> what might uh, happen. And then, uh, yeah. And any final thought for us then? Yeah. Uh, it's definitely uh, when it comes to the October surprise, hopefully it's not a war with Russia or China. <laughs> Cause I always think, you know, this is an, un- those are unthinkable things because of uh, nuclear weapons. And, but now I'm just starting to kind of doubt that, that these people wouldn't go take that next step when it comes to this war. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is just the direction that the U.S. empire is going. It's confronting Russia and China. And I think uh, it's just a really dangerous uh, era that we have entered. Well, the Pope did say that World War Three has uh, begun. And uh, as you said, I mean, I'm just seeing more signals and trends that we're moving towards a conflict. I was reading foreign policy today. Uh, that was talking about international rela- relations theory, basically informing us that we are on the trajectory towards great power conflict between Russia, China, uh, and the U.S. And a number of my guests, I don't know if it's confirmation bias, but they continue to uh, say, like, yeah, this is just the beginning. Um, and unfortunately, history, you know, the default is war. So we are in for interesting times. Uh, again, I, I'll include all of your links in the description, but if you want to tell us, you know, where are the best places to uh, find you on the internet? Yeah. So I write at antiwar.com, all the stories in the top news section. I, I write a lot of them uh, every day and you can follow me on Twitter at the camp Dave. Uh, I started a new podcast you'll find on the page of antiwar.com and you can download it wherever, you know, I Apple, uh, Spotify, all those places you listen. You can also watch on Odyssey, is um uh you know trying to move more away from youtube but uh yeah that that's it uh it's called anti-war news with dave DeCamp. so if you put that in anywhere you listen to podcasts you could check it out and it's sort of like a daily 20 25 minute update on the news from our you know non-interventionist american perspective so i think it's a pretty valuable resource I was surprised to find you had a. I think the last time we spoke may have been in the spring or something uh, on tnt and uh I think but it's it's something relatively new. You started up like in the summer in July or something? Yeah, at the end of July. It's so it's very new. All right. Um always great to chat again. Everyone check out antiwar.com. I I go there regularly, libertarianinstitute.org. Uh the podcast links will be in the description. Thanks for coming on Geopolitics and Empire, Dave. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, 
Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms. Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.